in our day, our generation is losing a hold of this idea of what truth is. Pontius Pilate asked Jesus, kind of rhetorically, so what is truth? As if anybody can really figure it out. Truth is findable. Truth is discoverable. Whether we discovered it or not, you've, heard, you've learned, truth is. Regardless of what I believe about truth, truth always is. Truth may be discovered, but it is never invented. God did that a long time ago. Truth and God are one. And Jesus said, I'm the way, the what? Truth and the life. For as long as God has been, which is for, from everlasting to everlasting, truth has been. Our generation, though, is questioning what is truth. And truth is discoverable. We have realized, just by looking at creation, it testifies to his eternal power and to his divine nature, which we discovered are basically his attributes. This past Wednesday, I filled up a whiteboard, a large whiteboard, with the attributes of God that we can discover just with the, the naked human eye and come to this conclusion of what he is like. But we also discovered that in the midst of all of this creativity and beauty and wisdom, I mean wisdom beyond our understanding, as far as how the cosmos works, as far as how our own bodies work, as far as the smallest cell of bacteria works, as far as a human cell and what DNA, we, they're just now in the last few years discovering you know, that, that there's, they're coming to this conclusion, there's no such, really no such thing as junk DNA. It all has a purpose. That as we look at all of this beauty and creativity, we have to realize as well that though we see that we see something in this creation that's broken, something is wrong. When I look at my own life, as you look at your own life, come on, do you not see something that's broken? Now, praise God, in Christ, that is in the process of being restored. It will not be fully restored, though, until we are face-to-face -face with Jesus Christ. This is what Scripture, the truth, says. But we see something broken, and anyone in any culture, cross-generationally, throughout time, has been able to observe this and be able to come to the conclusion, this is amazing, there must be a God, but this God is so different than me, because as I look at his creation, I can see the fingerprints of destruction. Where did that come from? I look at my life, and I am not like him. I see in me a brokenness. How does this brokenness be healed? And if he is relational and I reflect that, and I think we can come to that proper conclusion just by observing creation in ourselves, then how does Mike Curtis once again come in fellowship with this God that obviously I have offended because of what, what the Bible calls sin? wrong. This brokenness offends others. Certainly, it offends the God that created me. How do I reconcile this? How do I build this bridge? All other religions, all of them apart from Christianity, including Judaism, though it shouldn't, comes to the conclusion man can fix himself. That, that man, if he just does enough good, God will smile upon him and wash him clean, forgive him, if, if they even believe that there's a God. Because some religions, like Buddhism, don't even believe there's a God. And so we have to then say, okay, there is a truth 
in part it's discoverable, but I am left with now, how does Mike Curtis have this relationship with the God that created him? And so we, we're, we're pressed in to discover where this truth is because this God that created me must want a relationship with me so he must reveal more other than creation. He must have some written record about truth that, is, that we can read, that we can discover, and so that can mend this, this distance between an infinitely holy God and a sinful Mike Curtis. Agnosticism, atheism comes up empty. They push God out of the window. Let me read something to you. This is from a gentleman, an astronomer, an agnostic astronomer by the name of Robert Jastrow. He says this, For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. He recognizes that he is unable to discover the ultimate truth which is found in God. He recognizes this. I would say that if there is a written record about God, that it would certainly have the fingerprints of God on it. There, there would be something about this revelation that I would be able to step back and say, it's clear God wrote this. It's clear. For example, I would expect that it contains something about supernatural events, something about the divine, God himself stepping into my meager existence, doing something. Because as humans, don't we interact? Don't we do things? Or is God just, like deism suggests, created man and just left him on his own? No, the God that created, we call this providence, he, he steps into our life. We, this would be naturally assumed, though deism throws that out the window because it embraces too much of what's called naturalism. And so I would suggest that this book, this divine book, would say something about the supernatural, i.e. miracles. I would also suggest that it would speak of God's creating the universe. Because if he does that, then he would then eventually come to this idea of what happens when Mike Curtis dies. I would want to know how unusual, listen to this, church, how unusual it is from the perspective of the agnostic, the skeptic, the atheist, whatever you want, label you want to place, that they believe that this universe happened by random chance, has absolutely no purpose, somehow through evolutionary processes designed or created a creature, human beings, that are consumed by purpose. How odd is that? That a universe that happened by accident without purpose has now produced a people consumed by purpose. I would anticipate that this book, this revelation of God, what theologians call special revelation, it would speak to this. It would speak to God's creating the universe with my ultimate future and purpose a part of that. It would speak to that. What his intentions of this creation are, how that creation got broken, 
is you tell me something about this. And not just how it got broken, but how it can get mended. Do you not realize that Scripture speaks about not just you and I being reconciled in Colossians 1? It actually uses a Greek word with a preposition. It's not just reconciled, but it means super reconciled. That Jesus, death on the cross, will eventually, at the end of the eight days, super reconcile all of creation. Not just you and me, but everything in this universe that is broken. That is the power of the cross and the resurrection. And so consequently, I would expect that this book would somehow deal with this brokenness that we can easily observe in creation in me as well. What can be done then to rebuild mankind's relation with God? It would also be unusual and unique enough to be convincingly divine, a revelation of God. And we're going to look at this because one example is in this area of prophecy. See, if God created this universe, which includes time, space, and matter. That's what our existence in the natural consists of. I believe, of course, there's a spirit realm, that there's a spirit in me, a soul, that is equally Mike Curtis as this flesh is. But I can't weigh that. I can't observe that necessarily. But I would suggest that this universe, if it is, if God created time, he is outside of that time. He is timeless. He is eternal. And therefore, he can easily know the future. Knowing the future then, would he not share a little bit about that? We call this prophecy or predictions. We're going to look at one of those predictions today concerning the city of Tyre. I would also expect that he would offer some hope about mankind's future concerning what happens to Mike Curtis after he dies and teach us then how we can live. Would he not want to guide us along the way? So, if there is no God, though, how immeasurably ironic it is that this universe has produced a creature so obsessed with purpose. I want to discover my purpose. And I want to tell you right now, in Christ, I have. So why should I, why should you accept the Bible, this book that I have in front of me that I'm going to read to you, and gentlemen, if I could have you pass out these papers, there's going to be enough for everybody to get one. Um, just hang on to these papers. We're going to get to them in just a brief moment. But I would expect that this Bible, excuse me, why should I accept that this Bible, this book, this declared revelation of God is divine? Number one, let me just say because it says so. Now, I realize that I can't just rest on that because that would be circular reasoning. Let me go on. It's historically reliable. It witnesses events and miracles. There is so much about it that is reliable. You know, if, if the Gospels um, have, uh, have proven themselves or could be proven to be historically reliable, and back in the, in the 1930s, anyone else need one? Here's one. Raise your hand if you don't have both pages. We, we have several people over here that don't have both pages. It's front and back, and it's, but it's two separate sheets. Just raise your hand if you did not get both. Oh, we have a... Okay, awesome. Thank you, guys. Keep passing them out. <clears throat> you know, if... In, 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 in 1930, they did an investigation, um, a particular gentleman, concerning this, and 
in his discoveries going through Asia Minor, he declared Luke to be of the highest rank historian. So many different things that they discovered in, in archaeology. Highest ranking historian. Now, if he is so accurate about the historical evidence, what about when he then crosses over and talks about miracles? Should we not accept them as well? Because there were eyewitnesses to these miracles, just as there were eyewitnesses to any of the events that he wrote about. But skeptics want to separate his history from those that are miracles. But they're one in the same. They're one in the same. Awesome. Thank you, guys. There has so the scripture is historically reliable. The Old Testament prophecies of the destruction of certain cities, and there's a number of them, Babylon, Sidon, Samaria. We're going to look at one today, Tyre. They would be accurate. Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. We'd be able to stake our life on those. If, we, if in looking at them, they are true, because no man can prophecy, regardless of Gene Dixon, regardless of Nostradamus, all of their prophecies have been vague, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with Jean Dixon or not, but so many of her prophecies were utter failures. About the most accurate thing she predicted was that the person elected, though she guessed the person wrong, it was not Nixon, but it was JFK, um, that they would die in office. Well, she got that right. But that's the one that gets touted. Look at Jean Dixon predicted. How about all the other prophecies that didn't come to pass? or predictions that she gave, and there's a slew of them. Nostradamus, if you've ever read anything about Nostradamus centuries ago, his prophecies are extremely vague. Almost any generation or person could fulfill some of these. Scripture is not that way. Scripture is so very, you're going to see this, so very specific. It's, there's nothing vague about these predictions. There's a syllogism I want to share with you. Remember, a syllogism is two claims of truth with a conclusion. Number, so the first one is if the Bible is the word of God, not just containing the word of God, that's neo-orthodoxy, but that the scripture is, the Bible is the word of God, and God, when he speaks, cannot err, I would have to conclude then the Bible is without error. I want to share a few scripture verses to you. They're not the focus of the message today, but listen to these. 2 Peter 1.21 says, For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Mac, excuse me, Mark. I don't know a Mac, sorry. Mark 12.36 says this, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared. That's an introduction to a word spoken, this prophetic, by David. But my point is he spoke by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture. The, the Greek is graphi or, or writings. The writings, the scripture, that would be the Old Testament for them and any of those that had been circulating. And remember in 2, Tim, 2 Peter 3, Peter himself talks about Paul's writings and some people twist them to their own destruction as they do the rest of the scriptures. So Peter even himself recognized Paul is writing scripture. So all scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, all scripture is, Greek word is theopneustos. King James says inspired, but it literally means God breathed. God breathed these words. They're from the very heart, mind, and mouth of God, 
And some would say, well, since man wrote it down, it's fallible, it's not inerrant. There's nothing in Scripture that would suggest this. They were kept with inaccuracy, what we call inerrancy. Let me read some more. Um, all scriptures God breathed in is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. John 17, 17, this is in Jesus' high priestly prayer. He says to the Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Are you looking for truth? Then it's God's word. His word that he spoke through the prophets, through the apostles. That is God's word. That is the truth. Psalm 19, 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. Matthew 24, 35, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Hebrews 4, 12 says the word of God is alive, it's living, it's active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and the intents of your heart. That is the power of the word of God. 1 Peter 1.23, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. And so we have to conclude that if we discover that God has spoken through the Bible, then it comes with authority. It's going to be inerrant. It is going to be true, and it cannot fail. So, Here's what we're going to do. We're going to, I'm going to say that his word must be eternal. It must be in, inerrant. It must be truth. And it must be powerful and life-changing. I mean, that is a truth that I want to discover and base my life on. So let, let's do that. I want you to turn. You have some pages in front of you there. The first one, it says at the top, Ezekiel 26. This is a prophecy or prediction about the city of Tyre. We're going to look at this. On the back, you will see, it doesn't happen on my back, but on the back, you will discover eight predictions. And I'm going to kind of walk you through, I'm going to have you underline certain things, and I'm going to walk you through this so you have a, an idea of what I'm going to be talking about. But these numbers I'm going to give you, you're going to underline and put a number above them, those are the predictions on the back of that sheet. The other sheet that you're going to have in front of you are four different maps. I'll speak about that in just a moment here, but... I want you to have those pieces of paper now in front of you as I pull my notes together. All right. Okay. So I believe that we can test this book. That if indeed it is the word of God, if it predicts something, then it's going to happen. And the more difficult it is for that prediction or those predictions to happen then the greater weight is cast in favor of this being a divinely written, inspired book, inerrant in what it says. Okay, do you follow? So <laughs> let me just tell you a little bit, <clears throat> excuse me, about Ezekiel. What's important to know is that when we're reading through this chapter, Ezekiel 26, about the destruction of Tyre, we need to realize that Ezekiel is predicting, and so it's prophetic. It is not historical. That means that Ezekiel was not written after this was fulfilled. We're going to be able to easily see that. And now what's called literary criticism, they have taken certain tools and they've applied it to the book of Ezekiel 
and they have come to a conclusion, the vast majority of them, though, this was written either at the time or before Nebuchadnezzar, only in part, Nebuchadnezzar only fulfilled one of these. There's seven others that he did not. It was written, though, before that, before the Nebuchadnezzar attack, okay? Now, mentioning this, that gives then this power to this idea of prediction. It's not written after the fact, but before the fact, okay? Number two, I want you to look at this map of Tyre, and at the top here, do you see this one? At the very front, at the top, this is what Tyre looked like during the days of Ezekiel. There's an island half a mile off of the coast. This island had a fortress. It was probably built before the mainland was, but both the city on the island and on the mainland were both called Tyre. Now, the Greeks mistakenly called the mainland Old Tyre. Technically, the island was probably built first. But regardless, there's half a mile apart. Now, on that island, it's, it was a fortress, and it was basically impregnable. The walls of the city went right up to the coast. So if you wanted to attack Tyre and overtake it, number one, the waters around the island were deeper than out further from the island. Number two, the wall came to the, the edge of the rocks so that... You could not have a standing army on the island and try with some sort of um, battering ram to knock walls or gates down. You couldn't do it. There was nowhere to stand. Realize, you've probably heard of the Phoenician navy in the Mediterranean. They were the most powerful force. Their capital was Tyre. So understand the power of this city, not just the power, but it, it, it had influence throughout the entire Mediterranean, extremely wealthy because of the size of its navy and merchant ship, the, the, number, the number in its navy and the number of merchant ships. So that is simply a map to show you something. We're going to come back to that. But if you were to look at the map below, that's what it looks like today. And I'm going to tell you why in just a few minutes, why it's so different. Okay. With that in mind, then, let's understand the wealth and the power and the knowledge that is in that city. The king of Tyre, by the name of Hiram, during David's day and Solomon, helped send cedars from the mainland to Jerusalem to help build the temple, by the way. Um, and so King Hiram of Tyre was actually favorably inclined to the building of David and his son Solomon's kingdom. They fell out of disfavor, however, as, century, as time went on, and they became extremely wicked, and God now prophesies through Ezekiel the destruction of this impregnable fortress. I'm going to read it to you now. Verse 1. Now, as I read through it, I'm going to have you underline and make some markings. So this is going to be an active listening time in, in God's word, all right? You ready? In the 11th month of the 12th year, <clears throat> on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. God spoke, Ezekiel listened, and then he wrote it down. Okay? Oh, I'm sorry, I added that. Verse 2, son of man, because Tyre has said to Jerusalem, aha, the gate of the nations is broken and its doors have swung open to me. Now that she lies in ruins, I will prosper. 
Now, this is after Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed Jerusalem in 605 and then even more so in 597 BC, okay? Two deportations. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Tyre, and I will bring many nations against you. Underline, I will bring many nations against you and kind of underline a little bit more many nations and put a number one. Did you get all of that? I will bring many nations against you. Put a one, circle it, whatever. Put that above that line. Like the sea casting up its waves. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and pull down her towers. I will scrape away her rubble and make her bare like a rock. Circle the pronoun they at the beginning of verse 4. And then halfway through the, the pronoun I, that's going to be important. And then underline, I will scrape away her rubble, put a two above that, and make her a bare rock, put a three above that. Okay, I'm giving you some homework. You, you doing okay, church? Following this all right? Okay. Out in the sea, double underline that. We're really going places with this, right? Double un underline that. We're going to come back to why. She will become a place to spread fishnets. Underline, she will become a place to spread fishnets and put a four above that. Okay, put a four above that. For I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord, she will become plunder for the nations and her settlements on the mainland will be ravaged by the sword. Underline twice the mainland. Maybe draw a line between out in the sea and the mainland. Just so that we recognize that there is a tire that's out in the sea and a tire on the mainland. It's going to be ravaged by the sword. Then, then they will know that I am the Lord. I'm going to come back to that at the end. So important. You with me, church? Verse 7. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. From the north, I will... I am going to bring against Tyre, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of the, excuse me, king of kings, with horses and chariots, with horsemen and a great army. He, I want you to circle that pronoun, he will ravage your settlements on the mainland. Underline that whole phrase, he will ravage your settlements on the mainland and put a number five, that's prediction number five above that. He's going to ravage your settlements on the mainland with the sword. He will set up siege works against you. Against where? The city on the mainland church or the city out in the sea? On the mainland. Just as long as we're on the same page here. Because many critics do not recognize this because, and they declare this is a failed prophecy. We're going to see it as anything but that. He will set up siege works against you, build a ramp up to your walls, and raise his shields against you. Verse 9, he will direct the blows of his battering rams against your walls and demolish your towers with his weapons. His horses, all of these are prone. He, his, this is Nebuchadnezzar. His horses will be so many that they will cover you with dust. Your walls will tremble at the noise of the war horses, wagons, and chariots when he enters your gates as men enter a city whose walls have been broken through. The hooves of his horses. Horses will trample all your streets. He, circle that, he will kill your people. You can go through all of that section there and circle the he pronouns. He will kill your people with the sword and your strong pillars will fall to the ground. They will plunder. Now, this is important. Some people believe that this is Nebuchadnezzar's army, but it is not. We're going to discover who they actually is, but it is certainly not Nebuchadnezzar, nor is it his army. They, in the plural, will plunder your wealth and loot your merchandise. They, circle it again, they will break down your walls and demolish 
your fine houses and listen to this. Throw your stones, timber, and rubble into the sea. Put a two above that line. Throw your stones, timber, and rubble into the sea. Put a two above that. I will put an end to your noisy songs and the music of your harps will be heard no more. I, circle that, I will make you a bare rock. Underline that whole phrase. I will make you a bare rock and put a three above it. I will make you a bare rock and you will become a place to spread fish nets. Underline that, a place to spread fish nets. We've come across that already, but put a four above that. Here we go again. You will never be rebuilt. Underline that phrase. You will never be rebuilt. Put an eight above it. For I, the Lord, have spoken, declares the Lord. Skip down to verse 9, 19. And I'm including the ones in between because I want you to get the full context so you can read it later if you desire and you can read further if you want. The next chapter, 27, is about Tyre as well, but I'm keeping my study to this. Verse 19. This is what the sovereign Lord says. When I make you a desolate city, like cities no longer inhabited, when I bring the ocean depths over you. How interesting is that? Underline that phrase. Bring, I bring, circle I, I bring the ocean depths over you and put a six above that. How are you doing, church? You doing pretty well? You getting confused? You okay? Doing well? All right, good, good. And its vast waters cover you. What? Then I will bring you down with those who go down to the pit, to the people of long ago. You're going to be just like every other destroyed city. That's what he's saying. I will make you dwell in the earth below as in ancient ruins with those who go down to the pit and you will not return or take your place in the land of the living. I will bring you to a horrible end and you will be no more. You will be sought, but you will never be found, declares the sovereign Lord. Underline that phrase, you will never be found and put a seven above that. Okay? Let me just say, as we turn to put your page over and look at now these predictions. Look at number five. Nebuchadnezzar, for in a 13-year battle, the, the climax of which was in around 587, very shortly after which he destroyed Jerusalem for the third time, took a third deportation out of Israel, J Judah, and took them captive. Um, Ezekiel was part of the second deportation, if you were wondering. And shortly after that, he gets this revelation. But this Nebuchadnezzar comes against Tyre. He tried to fight against the island out in the sea, but he, he failed. He, he couldn't do it, and he focused his attack on the mainland with the walls, gates, and so on, destroyed that, leveled it, and overran it with his horses, chariots, and so on. And he fulfills number five, but he does not fulfill any more of these. When we underlined many nations... Let's understand, this is not just talking about Babylon or Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It's just not just talking about the Babylonians. It, it includes the Persians and how they attacked. The Greeks, the Muslims, others like Syria, Rome, Armenia, and Egypt attacking this city, bringing destruction to it. The many nations are far beyond just the influence or the impact of Babylon. But here is my question. Look at number two and number three. 
The debris, so number one has to do with many nations against Tyre that I listed. Number two and three, the debris scraped from the city would be thrown into the sea. That's number two. Number three, the city will be made a bare rock. How unusual is that? I mean, when a city is destroyed, who cares about the debris that's laying on the street? Does somebody come in and sweep it and say, we want to look this nice and we want to make sure this looks nice and tidy for the tourists who say, oh my goodness, they were destroyed. Where's Tyre? I mean, they're going to see a bunch of rubble. They're going to see rocks. They're going to be stones. They're probably going to see some of the uh, siege mounts that came against the wall that maybe got broken and Nebuchadnezzar left them. What, what, why do anything with the destruction of the mainland? So how on earth, and not just how, but why would someone clean up? Well, let me tell you about 250 years later, in 332 B.C., a gentleman by the name of Alexander the Great, aspiring to conquer the world, realized that to, do, to conquer the Persian Empire, he needed to cut off their navy, which was in the Mediterranean, from their army on the mainland. To do that, he needed to systematically go down the coast, the eastern coast of the Mediterranean, and knock out every single port. But that would mean the port of Tyre as well. When Alexander the Great got to the mainland, destroyed, no problem, but how is he going to take this island? He tried for years to take it, months to take it, and he, he couldn't do it. Whenever his boats would get close to it, all of their weaponry up on top of the walls would come at these boats and sink them. They couldn't do it. And so Alexander the Great, who was in his early 30s, an incredible military strategist, came up with an amazing idea. He had discovered that there was a natural land bridge between the mainland and the city of Tyre, but it didn't quite go all the way up to the island because it, there was like a, a deeper trench around the island. So he had this amazing idea. He was going to build a causeway or a mole all the way out to the island, about 200 feet wide, so that his army could go out there, so that the um, siege um, siege machines of war he'd be able to there were two of them that he put out there they would have catapults battering rams whatever and they would be able to lay siege to the city so here's how he did it he ordered his men go into the forest cut the trees down go to the old mainland i want every rock and he even says that he had the land the the old city of tyre swept all of the dust all of the debris, all of the rocks, and it took months and months to do this, were brought then, dumped into the sea on top of this sandbar at low tide. It was about six feet, and they filled it up half a mile long, 200 feet wide. In this then, it, it did take several months because the Tyrians were strategists as well and had... Sutterfuge going on and, and trying to attack the Babylonians when they were not present, destroyed their war machines out there. He eventually was able to, he made the, the mole wider. We're not sure exactly how wide, but he made it wider. And then he was able to 
pulled his other ships, numerous ships, surround the city, and it was a barrage with his army on the, the causeway, his boats out in the, in, in the sea, and as they attacked from all sides, they were finally able to tear down the wall, enter it, and destroy the city. And therefore, prophecies or predictions number two and three were fulfilled. That's how Alexander the Great fulfilled those two. But we still have four others, four, six, seven, and eight, that remain unfulfilled. How were these predictions fulfilled? Number six, I want to read something to you. Over time, something happened to the island. Now, as you can see in the photo on the bottom of this page, this is present-day Tyre, and this has been filled, the mole, which was right in the middle, has been filled in north and south of it with plenty of sand and debris and rocks, etc. And what we discover is that over time, the island began to sink into the sea. Now, in 11, let me get the date uh, correct here. In 1160 AD, there was a traveler who was writing about his travels. He visited the city, and this is what he wrote down, and we actually have record of this. This is from a gentleman by the name of Benjamin of Tudela. He writes this, a man can ascend the walls of New Tyre, that would be the island, and see ancient Tyre, excuse me, and can see ancient Tyre. This, um, so he's on the mainland, the walls of New Tyre, and he can look out and he can see on this, from this island at the end of this causeway, he can see ancient Tyre, which the sea has now covered, lying at a stone's throw from the new city. And should one care to go forth by boat, one can see the castles, the marketplaces, streets, and palaces in the bed of the sea. They tried to rebuild it, but the sea was covered. There's technically less than 25%, probably closer to 25% of the island that is above water. The sea has come in, and it has washed over this mighty fortress at one time. And you can actually see some of this on the back here. I'm not going to walk you through it. I'll let you do that to your desires. But I, I want us to understand that when it says the ocean would cover the, cover the city, that's exactly what has happened. It would never be found again. It's underwater. Old city of Tyre on the mainland is an archaeological site. Nothing has been built on there. The present-day Tyre, new Tyre, is built around it, but not on the present location. It happens to have the same name, but my goodness, Jericho was destroyed and years and centuries later, it was supposedly rebuilt so that when Jesus passes through it, he actually is going through the new Jericho. And the, Jericho was destroyed. And the new Jericho is one mile away. Is it really a rebuilding of Jericho? Though it has the same name, we would have to say no. No, it certainly isn't. And that's what ha has happened with Tyre. There's, there's, most of the settlements are in this half mile out in the, you know, this causeway that connects this uh, land bridge now that goes between the mainland and the island. 
So it's, it's pretty much indistinguishable as you look at the map. Many people live on, on there. That was in the past, that was in the ocean. What we're discovering, though, is that this city truly has not been rebuilt. It's most of it, the, the mighty fortress on the island, it's gone. Some neighborhoods have been built. I want you, I want you to, to imagine that the entire New York City was destroyed. In its destruction, being leveled, a few neighborhoods popped up. On the mainland, north of it, maybe closer to Albany, some more neighborhoods pop up, even a city. But they call this New York. Can I ask you, has New York been rebuilt? I would venture to say, well, no. A, a little bit, but it's nothing like New York. Present-day Tyre does not have the wealth or the fame or the power that the old city of Tyre had at all. So can I... Can we conclude then, this is not Tyre being rebuilt. This is a different city. It just happens to have the same name, but it is vastly different. Now, I'm bringing this up to you because all of these predictions have come true. If you were to go there today on New Tyre, you would see rocks covered with nothing other than fishnets, fulfilling prediction number four. Every single one of these has been fulfilled. When, I, when Ezekiel prophesied this, it would, be, it would not be on anyone's imagination that they could, this could be fulfilled. Even skeptics today find some way to say, no, but it wasn't fulfilled. And, 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 and I have to step back and I say, wow, they're just trying so hard. But they're missing it. And I'm not going to get into the, the details of it, but church, I'm going to tell you right now, this prophecy, all eight predictions have been fulfilled. This tells me something. This says that when God spoke, he kept his word. When God revealed to Ezekiel what would happen, it happened. Ezekiel was faithful to write it down. Every single one of these came to pass. That is the power of prediction. There is no other religion that can come close to the scriptures when it comes to prediction or prophecy. If you were to read through the Quran, you would find one prediction made by Mohammed. I'm not talking about the writings later outside of the Quran. The Quran itself, it has one prediction in which Mohammed says that he will return to Mecca. Okay. MacArthur made a similar claim, I shall return, and he went back to the, the, the Philippines, I guess it was. Yeah, so, so not too hard. If you were to look at the Bhagavad Gita, um, held sacred by the Hindus, um, and, and I'm not speaking harshly or meanly, I'm just saying, guys, where is the truth? As we look out into our world, where is the truth? I'm suggesting this is truth, and, and just one of the evidences is prediction. And when you look at the Bhagavad Gita, you would discover there's a lot of predictions about the future. But when you begin to read those predictions, they are so very vague, any generation could fulfill them. Any generation. The Bible is not written that way. The Bible, when it, talks, when it speaks of prediction, is not vague. It is very specific. In the future, we're going to see more of this. I want you now to, I've, I've got about 10 or so minutes. I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Where's all of this going then? I mean, truly, if this book is the inspired revelation of God, 
What does it mean for me? What does it mean for you? If we're going to come to this conclusion, God spoke this. This is the truth. After all, that's what this series is about, right? This is the truth. So what? Now, when Jesus was being inaugurated into his ministry, he went into the desert for 40 days. After the 40 days was over in his time of testing, the devil threw three more temptations at him that both Matthew and Luke record. The first one, the devil said, hey, are you hungry? A pretty stupid question, right? After 40 days, of course he's hungry. He's been fasting. And he said, Satan says to him, so why don't you just take these stones and turn them to bread? Now, you and I would look at that and say, yeah, why not? I mean, Jesus could do that. John the Baptist spoke to the Pharisees and he said, hey, you think you're children of God? God can take these stones and raise up children to him. How hard is that? So how hard would it be for Jesus to take the stones and turn them into bread? But notice this about Jesus. Jesus never did miracles to say, wow, wasn't that cool? Every miracle has a purpose. But also understand this, that none of the purposes, apart from the very last one, his resurrection, had anything to do about him meeting his needs. His miracles were always meeting the needs of others. So the very first miracle that he could have done could have been turning these stones to bread. But here's what he says in response. I'm going to read to you, because he quotes from this passage, Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. We don't live simply on bread. See, I am not just a body. Mike Curtis is not just a physical being, a human in that sense, and flesh and blood. And yes, I need bread to live. Mike Curtis is more than this. You are more than this. You are spirit, and you have been asked by your creator to have this relationship with him. And so this sense of purpose swells in your heart, and you want to find this purpose in the God that created you. And so how does that happen? Yes, God gives us sustenance like bread for this, Mike Curtis, the flesh and blood. But what about your spirit? And so Jesus says, you know, devil, I don't just live the, the, in this body. My spirit longs to fulfill the word of the Father. And it is not by turning these stones into bread. It is not. The purpose the Father has for me is to serve others. And my bread, my life, comes from his word. He says, I speak only what the Father says to me. I do only what the Father reveals to me. Church, we can do nothing. Our, your life, your spiritual life, is not found in bread, but it is found in the word of God. Can I just ask you, if that is true, how should you view the Word of God? Is it simply a book that you listen to on Sunday mornings as the pastor reads some passages to you? And maybe if you come Wednesday nights that you, know, you study it a little bit more? I mean, why? Because this is life. This book reveals to me Jesus Christ who came to this earth to rescue this lost soul, Mike Curtis. And now I have a relationship with him and I, I, I receive life 
from the words of God. You receive life from these words of God. They, they are powerful. They are truth. And Jesus said in John 8, that truth will set you free. The Jews came back and said, wait, wait, wait. You, we are slaves to no one. And Jesus said, oh, my goodness, have you missed it. it in his own way, of course. And he said, wow, whoever sins is a slave to sin. And the only way that you can overcome that slavery, that addiction to sin, is through the truth. So our generation, just like King Manasseh, are sweeping the truth under the carpet. Where is it? They eventually found, two generations later, they found the law of the Lord in the temple because it had been discarded, and that is what our generation is seeking to do today. Church, we have the word of God. It is life for us. It is life for you. I remember, wow, I, I gave my heart to Christ when I was 14 years of age. I was going through college, um, madly in love with this woman I was looking forward to marrying, and I, I, I commuted, so it's a 25-minute commute from Wilmington, Delaware to Newark, Delaware, which is where University of Delaware was. And in my junior year, so actually the year after I met her, I'm starting to wrestle with my faith. I'm majoring in psychology, and I'm learning this stuff about some of which was kind of cool, some of which really stirred up some questions. How do I know that this conversion experience that I had six years ago was genuine. How do I know that this book right here that I've been reading like every day and, and, and it was like to me, how do I know it's true? I mean, how do I know that it's true? And I went through a crisis of faith. Can I just let you in on a little secret in my heart at that time when I'm commuting 25 minutes? Stray thoughts, not just questions would come to me, but stupid thoughts like turn off the road here and crash into the, this bridge. And, and it was, I, these questions were coming at me from everywhere. And I'm thinking, God, am I just going crazy here? And I was pressed in. I, 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 wanted, I want to know the truth, God, because as, as these questions came in, I began to feel something within me veering off course, wanting the purpose in my life to come to an end. And, and I realized I needed to be tethered stronger to this word of God. I didn't want to just guess or hope that it was the word of God. I wanted to know. And so for several months, these questions came and these silly thoughts would come to me and pull off, crash here, do this. And I was like, something, someone wants to end my life. What is going on? And so I talked with my wife-to-be at the time. And I said, this is silly. I, I, for some reason, I'm just having these questions. And she directed me to a book that began a journey for me. This is by Dr. James Kennedy, Why I Believe. A number of you have read this. I read this book. In it, I can't remember which chapter it is, he talks about what I just shared with you concerning the destruction of Tyre. He takes only a few paragraphs to talk about it. I got interested in it, and I wanted to know more. There was so much information I read through this. I began to realize the evidence for the Christian faith that this book right here is truly in every way inspired and what I expected to come from a book inspired of God, I discovered here. And the more I realized that, God just brought me more and more and more to his word. I began to realize 
There is no other religion, as this book proposes, no other religion that remotely compares to Christianity when you look at the evidence. There's hundreds, if not thousands of times more evidence, scientific, archaeological, with regard to prophecies and the like, the historical reliability of the Gospels, the resurrection of Jesus. And I just began to Wow, I, I, for, how, for six years, actually more, because I, I was born and raised in the church, how have I missed this? But here's what happened, church. I began to realize, just like Jesus, and just like J- Moses when he's writing this, I don't just live by bread alone. I live by the word of God. It is my life. And if it is my life, then there are certain implications about that. It shows how our relationship with God can be mended or be born again. It reveals God's promises, which in turn reveals my purpose. God has promises and a purpose for you, and it teaches and trains. If you look at verse 5, it says, Know then in your heart that a man man disciplines his son, so the Lord disciplines you. That Hebrew word for discipline means more than just punish. It also means to teach or to train. So I don't want you to, to think that God just gives us his word to discipline or punish us, but to, to train you. He, he, he wants you to follow after him. He wants to become your consuming passion. We can look at the word of God intellectually all day long, and let me remind you that's exactly what the Pharisees did, but Jesus said that you search the scriptures and yet you don't find life. This is the purpose of God's word, that you find life in him, that you find life as this reveals to you his promises and this invitation, follow me, long for me. This word of God reveals me to you. I have so many precious promises. I have a purpose for your life, good works that he's, that he's created for you to walk in. This is your purpose. This is your destiny. We looked at Wednesday. Design implies destiny or purpose. God created you with that intention in mind. He wants to walk with you. He wants you to find your life here in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so as I began to read that book and other books, they invited me simply to trust this. They have not been, those books have not been the focus in my life. This is, as it points me to Jesus. And I'm going to tell you this. The amazing thing about God is that not only does he reveal himself in this book, but he invites you to experience him every day. Not just on an intellectual journey, but a journey that will change your life. That As you read through this, It speaks powerfully to you. Can I suggest to you then that maybe just beyond Sunday mornings or Wednesday nights that you are in the Word of God. But that as you are like that man who meditates on the Word of God day and night, that you would become, or a woman, that you would become like that tree planted by streams of water. whose leaf also will not wither, Produces fruit in its season, and whatever you do might prosper. 
Because God is leading you. He's fulfilling his purpose in and through your life. Amen, church? Amen. Can you just stand with me? As we are discovering that the word of God, this Bible, the scriptures are truth, and the invitation then that it offers to us, I want to now give you that opportunity. I realize that maybe most, if not all of you, have a relationship with God. But if you do not, if you're watching online and you do not, today is the day of salvation. He, 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 don't, don't put this off. There's something inside the spirit of man that, that wants to put off challenges. Today is the day of salvation. Make that decision. I will follow Jesus. I will surrender to him and I will follow him. But number two, maybe today you have discovered that your heart has become wayward. That, that, that was what was beginning to happen in my life as I began to doubt and question and wonder. I'm okay with questioning as long as I seek the answer in God. But these questions were pulling me further from it. There was a heaviness. And, and maybe you're experiencing some of that today. Let's take care of that. Get into God's Word. Let it become your life, your sustenance. So, Father, we do that. God, I just ask you that you would take your word and today seal it in our hearts and, and impassion our hearts to be followers of Jesus Christ and him alone. The Father, if we are being pulled aside, pulled away, and we are being removed from the truth, maybe being begun to sweep it under the carpet, God, bring us back to the truth of your word and base our life on your word and live for you according to your word and find life here, God as we yearn to walk with you and experience this amazing God that has created us with purpose. Jesus, would you do that for every single one of us? God, through your word, show us, Jesus, to walk closely with him this day and every day. In Christ's name I pray, amen, amen.